for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're with Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. G'day, g'day. Welcome to the program. It's good to have you along, and I hope you're in the mood for some rather strong, opinionated radio stroke television today because we have some global doctrines to crush and we've got just the expert to do so. We've got a few egos to deflate as well. That's always fun. So don't go anywhere and spread the word. And of course, you can watch this broadcast. Yes, you can. Even if you may be listening as I speak, you can access our video streaming on all major video streaming platforms. That's right. So X, Look for TNT Radio on X. Look for TNT Radio on Facebook. You can look for it on Rumble. You can look for it on YouTube. You can come to our app, tntradio.live, or you can also go to our website as well and watch what we do here at TNT. Now, shortly, the fallout from Donald Trump's victory in New Hampshire. Wait until you hear what his son Eric had to say in an exclusive interview he conducted with Nigel Farage. I'll play some of that for you. And that pathetic former Trump communications spokesperson, yes, Anthony Saramucci, he has somehow found someone who wanted to air his dirty laundry, or at least his dirty feelings towards Donald Trump. He's done so, and I'll play you a little bit of that and show you why he is completely and utterly wrong. And the very best analysis, I think, after New Hampshire came from one of my favourite political commentators, Charles Payne. Uh, We'll get to that firstly. But my special guest today will be global crisis consultant Omar Khan. Now, Omar is a man with his finger very much on the proverbial pulse of the world. His firm, EP Global, teaches better decision-making and leadership. And couldn't we do with a, a bit better version of that? And he's got plenty to say about the state of our fragile world and the men who put their egos before the better good. Now, after what has been a, well, disastrous week for Israel, I thought we'd check in with uh, former ADF intelligence officer and Middle Eastern expert Shane Healy. He'll be on in this edition. We will get the latest from Gaza. We'll discuss whether Israel is losing the war, as some military experts are predicting, and terrorists who leave the prison system. Happens in every country, almost on a weekly basis. How do you trust them? Can you ever trust them to behave like a normal human being, but also a citizen? Is that possible? I'll speak to Shane, who quite often is tasked with assessing whether someone is a risk or not, just before they're released from prison. That's exactly the work he has been doing this week. And from down under, the Chief Libertarian John Ruddick, MLC, will be on the program, uh, a smorgasbord to discuss from the Southern Hemisphere, from the teaming up of former US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo with former US, sorry, with former Australian PM Scott Morrison, yes, Scott Morrison has, as we heard in the news throughout the last two days, he has decided to pull the plug, resign from Parliament. There'll be a by-election, as there always is, because they do it at their own choosing, as opposed to thinking about what it costs the taxpayer. But anyway, Morrison is going to work for Pompeo. How will that work? 
or has he been lining up that kind of job for quite some time? And the latest hateful criminal act by protesters who detest colonialism. I don't know what kind of world they want to live in. Maybe colonialism isn't for them. Well, surrender all your clothes, your mobile phones, your homes, absolutely everything, and go and live in a primitive landscape. And we have your good selves, uh, some of whom I hope will be jumping on our talkback lines and telling us the truth and having your say, expressing your opinion, and you can do that by phoning in from the United States or Canada on one 201 You can do so very early in the morning in the UK, just gone 4am on 033-0024-1026. And from Australia and New Zealand on one 310 Looking forward, as always, to speaking with you and hearing what you have to say. You're with Chris Smith. We're broadcasting live on the Global News Talk Network, TNT. Be a part of the conversation. I want representation I can trust. Have your say. Biden isn't doing enough. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, if you've done what I've done and read just about everything in terms of what people thought and how they reacted to the win in New Hampshire by Donald Trump, you'd probably come to the realisation that universally it was regarded as an easy, comfortable victory. Now, I could also play you a montage of commentary from the mainstreamers who are literally quivering about Trump's ascension, and they are freaking out, literally freaking out. But I won't bore you with the negatives. The irony is that the media itself has assisted Trump's momentum by deviously colluding to take him down. That's what they've done. They've gone all out to take him down. They've conflated his legal misdemeanors. They've tried to convince Americans that Trump was coming to destroy the Constitution, to tear down the Capitol building and jail every living Democrat. I exaggerate slightly to make my point. Uh, All of that fanciful Trump derangement syndrome only turns the public behind him, not against him. And let's not underestimate the appalling personal performance of one Joe Biden. The president is not the same man who campaigned leading up to the election of 2020. That is significant. And the public knows it. They see it. They hear it. And I was drawn to an interview conducted by Nigel Farage in London with Trump's son, Eric, this week. Here he is explaining what a weak US president has done to the once great superpower. I don't. Um, you know, if you can't walk up the stairs to Air Force One, if you can't walk across a room, if you can't get off a stage, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to disparage because that's not my, my style, but, uh, I, you know, that's a rigorous job. I saw my father went through every single day. It's the toughest job in the world. I mean, these are real decisions every second of every single day, real leadership, and it's tough, and I just don't think he has the stamina. Uh, stamina. Yeah, that was something I should have played a little bit later, but what I wanted to play is the next piece of audio, which is from... Eric Trump. And Eric talks about how America was once a great superpower, but now is basically doomed. Have a listen to what he says. Uh, America is the epitome of, of, of power and might and, and keeps so many seams together. And all of a sudden you start seeing a weakness. It's really coming from one person. Well, And, and those fissures start to crack. And then yeah. you, you see instances like what we're seeing in Israel. And you see, and you know what the sad thing, Nigel, about the Israel conflict is? If that happened under Donald Trump, he would have been thrown out of office. Meaning, if our intelligence agencies missed thousands and thousands of people assembling thousands of rockets and 
taking over outpost camps in Israel and coming across the border and gliders, if, if our NSA and our CIA missed that, they would have been calling for his resignation the next day. And, you know, during this administration, this was ho-hum. You know, our greatest ally, our greatest ally by far in the Middle East gets attacked. He's right. It's true. Trump would have been blamed for this abominable failure of intelligence. But, of course, the media let Biden through the gate on that one. But on the same day that Eric spoke there, betting company Betfair revealed that punters around the world were now placing more bets on Michelle Obama becoming president than Biden. 10.9% of bets on the Betfair exchange market this year so far have placed on Michelle Obama. What do they know? Punters are often not wrong. Biden, who's actually running, has only had 10.6% of bets placed on him. What does that tell us all? Eric Trump doesn't even think Joe will be the Democratic nominee, as you heard a little bit earlier with that first piece of um, video. And have a guess who else has surfaced in the media after the New Hampshire result. Mr. 11 days in the job, the former director of communications under President Trump, the eternal hater, Anthony Scaramucci. Mr. Mucci. Uh, he must be concerned about Trump's numbers and his ascension at the moment because otherwise he wouldn't come out of hiding. He's now back on the media stage campaigning for Biden. I'm choosing the person that's going to preserve the American institutions of the democracy and the American system. Mr. Trump has already said that he doesn't want to do that. He wants to be dictator for a day. He wants to expand the executive powers. He wants to persecute. He wants to use what has typically been an agnostic Justice Department but he wants to use that to persecute his political adversaries. Uh, this is not stuff that the UK, uh, the rest of the world, our European allies, our global allies uh, will, will think highly of once he's in office. And so uh, I'm speaking out against it. Uh, he's not going to win, by the way, which is totally fine. People can say whatever they want. But I submit to you rhetorically, name me one person that didn't vote for Trump in 2020 it's all of a sudden saying, OK, yeah, I'm ready to vote for the guy. It's just not not going to happen. He was a dud communications spokesperson and he hasn't improved much either. It's actually funny to hear Scaramucci claim that Biden is the upholder of United States democracy. His administration, Biden's, has weaponized the judiciary against his opponent more than any other in living memory. Fact. But what the mooch hasn't calculated when he says he can't win is how many voters are now backing Trump because of the pylon against him and the destruction of democracy. He talks about, oh, who would? Well, firstly, there's that particular invitation. The invitation is, well, we're going to knock down democracy in the judiciary to ensure that we don't have Donald Trump as an opponent. And the mob don't like that stuff. That's what's elevating Trump. And it was a point made on Fox News yesterday, forcefully and brilliantly by journalist Charles Payne. I had a segment coming up, so I, I Googled Biden hates MAGA. 
nothing but art, articles after articles after articles. He has expressed hatred for Who's half writing of the country. those articles? It doesn't matter. The, and look it's at not. Him. Because, because the bottom line is he says it. He has vitriol for them. And so does MSNBC and so does CNN and so does the New York Times. They have vitriol for half of the nation. They don't look at them like fellow Americans. And it's unfortunate. They try to paint them as racist. They're, all the things that they do to their fellow Americans who simply want a safe home, a safe community for the children to have prosperity. They want the same thing. Brilliant. He nailed it. Bullseye. The American public showed in 2016 that they won't stand for any kind of candidate, whether that candidate be the president or not, who considers them to be deplorables. We found that out in 2016. They're doing it again to the members of MAGA and they won't stand for it either. Uh, meanwhile, by the way, Donald Trump has hit his shortest odds to win the election yet at six to four. That is a very powerful lead in just a three-horse race. This is TNT. TNT's Steve Malsberg. If a president could be prosecuted for things he did, which he believed and was advised by his lawyers what, what was, was the duty of the president to do, and then after the fact, after he's president, he could be prosecuted. The example has come up today many times. Well, when Joe Biden leaves office, he could be prosecuted for not securing the border. Barack Obama um, okayed drone strikes against American citizens overseas. He could be prosecuted for murder. I mean, this opens up a whole can of worms. Um, Pandora's box, I think, is the term that, uh, that Trump used. Steve Malsberg on today's News Talk TNT. I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. Are you sitting comfortably? Oh, yes, yes. And I'll begin. Even when you're just sitting around, we're rocking the talk. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. A lot of things have happened in the last 48 hours in reference to EVs, electric vehicles. There's been a major statement made by the chairman of Toyota, which I want to tell you about, 
And on top of that, if you're living in freezing cold conditions in some part of the United States right now, and you just happen to be the unfortunate soul that has an electric vehicle, what's happening? Yes, your vehicle is dead. It's a dead robot and you can't get a charge from anywhere if it's covered in ice. I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, earlier this week, World Health Organization Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus warned that the global pandemic agreement is at risk of going nowhere. Now, if you've been following this program, that would be a great pity to me, not. Uh, he claimed that established viewpoints and a torrent of fake news, lies and conspiracy theories had slowed the momentum. Now, when it comes to fake news, perhaps Tedros should be looking at the WHO itself. My next guest, live from Colombo in Sri Lanka, will discuss this and a whole heap more. Omar Khan is a global crisis consultant who's advised clients in the United States, the UK, Europe, South America, South Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific, including Australia, on leadership responses to opportunities and crises. His firm, EP Global, seeks to convey better information for better decision-making. Wouldn't that be um, an improvement on what we have at the moment? Omar Khan, welcome to TNT. Thank you, sir. I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you very much. Let's begin with the WHO and its attempt sure. to become what I described as the government of all world governments when a health crisis next occurs. Uh, let's listen to some of what Tedros said. This work is not easy, and it's occurring in a very difficult environment. The IMB and the IHR working group are operating amid a torrent of fake news, lies, and conspiracy theories. There are those who claim that the pandemic agreement and IHR will cede sovereignty to WHO and give the WHO Secretariat the power to impose lockdowns or vaccine mandates on countries. You know, this is fake news, lies, and conspiracy theories. Where is this up to? Um, I'm not a fan of an additional agreement to give the WHO any power whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Where's it up to, given what he's just said there, do you think? Well, he is a... Um... He's a master of telling partial truths. And um, so they skate on thin ice when it comes to this. I mean, what he means is there's an intervening step. You would have to classify um, a crisis as being of a certain texture before the WHO's pandemic preparation guidelines uh, would be invoked. So they wouldn't have direct authority. I mean, it's not like they would call... Uh, Downing Street uh, or the White House uh, and say impose lockdown. But they would claim that the conditions have been met where that is as per the treaty, um, the uh, the guidelines they should follow. I mean, let me just, let's just lift the lid. After World War II, we had a very clear declaration of human rights, as you know, 1948. And it said there would be no totalitarian rule. All are equal before the law, I'm quoting, are entitled without any discrimination to equal protection of the law. All are entitled to equal protection against any discrimination. WHO has now removed the language, proposes to remove the language, that says with full respect, 
for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of persons, and wants to replace it with equity, coherence, and inclusivity. Now, that to me is a chilling redrafting and tells you everything you ought to know about what's happening here. Because those are vague terms, uh, equity, coherence, inclusivity. Well, then as an individual, you're out of luck. Exactly. You're out of luck. That's a very good way to describe it. It's not just an individual getting carried away with their own self-importance. I get the feeling the entire organisation after the pandemic has got carried away with its own self-importance. Well, you see here, we're rewriting history now, right? Because if you looked at the pandemic, it should be a disqualifying performance Mm. for any organisation. They should all be in the gallows. Yeah. Um, they predicted an extraordinary global event, which was only extraordinary because of the unhinged response. There was nothing. Uh, This was a median influenza strain, 99% recovery rate for anyone below 65 who wasn't riddled with comorbidities. We had early treatments. Most of the the, the deaths caused in hospitals were because of wrong treatments ventilators, um, quack treatments like remdesivir and so on. And all the places that didn't use the vaccines, didn't have the money or didn't have the inclination, like most of Africa, did much better. Mm -hmm. So everyone who followed the WHO playbook had the most devastating stats. So why... Even if pandemic preparation is required, and I don't for the moment, for a moment, see that it is, why would you give it to a cockamamie organization that got every forecast, every prediction, that backed vaccines that don't work? And all, you know, so they, and I don't know if you've seen this, but in his statement, he says the COVID pandemic destroyed economies. We can't let it happen. No, it didn't. You destroyed economies. Yeah. Your recommendations to governments and senior health officials across the world destroyed economies. And the fact that they were for sale and had no vertebrae or brains. So we could have this, the 21st leader, no vertebrae, no brains, apply (laughs) here. You can get voted in. Uh, um, No, it's nonsense. And if if I can just add one more uh, little uh, bit to it. If you want to see in microcosm what this is like, you just go to my home country of the U.S., where the Department of Justice is still prosecuting individual dissidents. Mm-hmm. For what? For things like, say, having um, come up with a doctored uh, you know, visa card because they had ideological, moral, or medical objections and still had to function. Now, we are in a period where we know those vaccines didn't work didn't help why are you still prosecuting them and exonerating the public officials that led to people's businesses being devastated absolutely um, and everything else absolutely that's what we're in for i couldn't agree more meanwhile the who has issued an urgent warning omar over measles after what it says is an alarming nearly 45 fold increase in measles cases in europe last year The WHO believes that this is a result of fewer children being vaccinated against the disease. That can't be right. Well, there are two possibilities here. 
One is that, of course, during the whole COVID stupor, um, vaccinations that people typically get, they couldn't get either because they couldn't get in line. They couldn't go to doctors. Um, and I know that, I mean, I know that in places like South Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, vaccinations that people do take were delayed, deferred, etc. So to the extent, that's one possibility that people just didn't get vaccinations they should have gotten. Uh, the other option, of course, is that these are stat statistics taken out of context because the overall trust in vaccines per se has been ruined. Correct. By calling these gene therapies vaccines. Now, they did that so we would trust them. Well, it go blows both ways. Now that we don't trust them, we don't trust anything else called a vaccine either. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, think, I think the latter is probably right on the money in terms of why less children are vaccinated. It's because their parents have gone, well, hang on a minute, we've been sold a total yeah. pup here and this is not where I'm taking you. When uh, the difference between the two sets of vaccines, Omar, is the fact that we've had, you know, six decades to see the efficacy of them as opposed to the experimental COVID vaccines. Well, the COVID vaccines weren't vaccines, first of all. Um, they were genetic treatments. Um, there were no human trials done of any proper um, stature. The trials that were done had nobody at risk. They then jabbed everyone in the control group so you couldn't even get uh, data over time, which is unheard of, which means you've just invalidated your own study. Mm. They hid the results, as we now know. They overstated them. So we have, we're firing blind. Mm, yeah. We mandated that rather than treatments that have been around, like ivermectin and others, for which billions of dosages have been given, you go and take something unknown and unheard of and make it mandatory such that you cannot operate in society without it. And then if you exercise your wits, you get prosecuted. Mm. Those that came up with them make windfall profits. Welcome to a brave new world. Yeah, well, how disgusting it is when you put it that way. I need to take a very quick break, Omar, for news. Only 30 seconds. I'll be back with you. I want to dovetail into other world issues, global issues, but we'll do that very shortly on TNT. What a news day this is turning out to be. Wait, 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 wait till you hear this. Now, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. A Russian military jet carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war has been blown out of the sky over Russia, allegedly shot down by Kyiv's own air defences. New Zealand's sending a small group of soldiers to the Middle East to help the international coalition that is supposed to stop Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. And the White House has called on Congress to approve a $20 billion sale of F-16 fighter jets and modernization kits to Turkey. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah, 24-7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio.
My guest today is leadership and crisis consultant Omar Khan. Omar, C.J. Hopkins is is an award-winning playwright, novelist, political satirist. He's well-known among freedom fighters and lovers for his political satire in mocking draconian COVID regulations. Of course, he can't even mock anything during the pandemic, uh, otherwise you're treated as some kind of charlatan. Um, to the point of a legal battle with German authorities over his satire, but he's had a legal victory this week. Tell us what happened. Well, what happened initially was that he had a cover of one of his books where he had a, a mask, one of these COVID idiot masks, and he had a swastika sort of behind it, um, visible, not on top of it, but and his, the point he was making graphically on the book was that we're headed towards that type of, of totalitarianism. Of and they said he was he was violating the a portion of the German criminal law <laughs> that makes it illegal to brandish swastikas. <laughs> but there isn't a total ban. You are allowed to use it for satire in Germany. You're allowed to use it to build antipathy towards it. And anybody with a you know grade school education could see that Mr. Hopkins was not celebrating a swastika. What he was warning us was that we were on a slippery slope that heads to that type of thinking. But taking him on the grounds of having used the swastika, they brought him to a criminal trial for which he could have spent two months in jail or had to pay a large fine. He refused that, and so it was up to the judge. He was courting serious jail time, um, but he felt it was important. Fortunately, the judge heard this, and even though she seems to be, as she left the, the court apparently with a big mask on her, as if to, after having accused him of spouting ideological drivel, <laughs> quote unquote, um, she went out with her Darth Vader mask uh, in contempt of science and reality, but she said this is not a criminal offense uh, for him to spout ideological drivel. And it's clear that he was incorrectly, in her view, stating that we were headed towards, uh, you know, Nazism. Hooray. His, uh, hooray. I will say to your listeners and viewers that his summation, which is available on his Substack, which is also available in the few media journalists who covered the trial is a tour de force uh-huh. um, and it would behoove everyone. I mean, he's a masterful writer, but one of the things he points out that he said, my Jewish wife is having to sit here in the court and have me explain why I'm not an anti-Semite. <laughs> Ridiculous. And I love the fact that the judge didn't get the joke, but still understood yeah. that it was a joke. <laughs> I love it. Now, in the biggest show of resistance to date against newly elected president of Argentina, uh, Javier Millay, the workers of Argentina have taken to the streets for a general strike, I hear, bringing large sections of Buenos Aires to a standstill. Where is Argentina headed? Um, they obviously see Millet as a man of change, but also someone they're rather frightened of. Is that the, a fair summation? Yes. I mean, he, um, you know, he is very libertarian. He yeah. is very anti-labor uh, and unions. He believes in free enterprise. He believes that Argentina, a country that has so many resources, so many riches, uh, so many advantages, 
has become a laughingstock, uh, not only post Peron, but just having followed these statist, um, so-called progressive uh, policies. And there's it a very good a, argument in all of that. Yeah. yeah. They're very, very compelling. Um, he's been removing regulations, and he's been arguing, of course, if you go to Buenos Aires, it's one of the most dazzling cities in the world. So it is a tale of two cities. I mean, you know, you have the extremely luxe, extremely civilized, Europeanized uh, elite, and then you have people literally scrabbling for sustenance uh, and existence. So I think that his deregulation is having pulled some of the government subsidies will come as a shock. I mean, is it like Margaret Thatcher to some extent? You know, when she issued a body blow to socialism in the UK, the Iron Lady, uh, maybe it's an element of that. And, you know, there was a coal miner strike uh, and everything else that in response. Um, they uh, are claiming, they're all showing, you know, icons of Evita Peron, which is... Other than the musical, not somebody that you would uh, want as your uh, moral uh, exemplar. Um, But, you know, it it is tough medicine. Uh, When you do these kind of reforms to modernize labor law, to ditch ditch rent regulation, um, it is a jolt. And the thing we might accuse him of is being tone deaf to what such an abrupt change might do to people's lives. I mean, I'm sitting here today in Sri Lanka speaking to you, and in Sri Lanka following IMF reforms, this once bankrupt country uh, had to seriously restructure debt. But the poverty rate in a country of 21 million is almost 7 million as a result. Mm. And it might escalate. People can't have three meals a day. So the IMF is, you know, sort of patting Sri Lanka on the back for uh, financial sanity and solvency. And in the main, probably that's a good thing. But in the short run, you have to manage what happens to people who have relied on those policies, however demented, whose lives have been structured around them. And if you don't have a safety net, you don't have a scaffolding, they're going to get a little irate. Exactly. There's got to be a transition. It's got to be a reasonable transition. I want to quickly ask you about the Middle East. We could go into the minutia of what's gone on. I won't. Uh, Suffice to say that in that last news bulletin on TNT, we spoke about the fact that any kind of agreement between Israel and Hamas over a two-state solution, any kind of agreement has been thrown off the table. It's not likely to happen, certainly not now. Where is this crisis headed? You see, I think... The problem we're facing there is there isn't an honest broker. You know, in the past, when you had the Camp David Accords, which at least between Egypt um, and Israel were very successful, or the temporary victory of the Oslo Accords, Mm. short-lived though it was, until Rabin was killed by an extremist um, Jewish person and uh, Arafat who got himself... Uh, easily inflamed into launching another intifada. Um, So great work undermined by the volatilities of uh, emotions. There's not an honest broker. The U.S. cannot, has ceded any moral ground now. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, so by calling it a genocide and then sitting on their hands, 
by attacking Yemeni Yemen for Red Sea blockades and just now this is extending into northern Iraq uh, because of Iran getting inflamed. Yeah. When you don't have a moral ground, when you aren't a broker, if the, when the U.S., if it could work with China, if it could work with Europe, if it could work with others, it could provide some kind of shock absorbers. So the real worry about where this goes is who's adjudicating this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hamas and Netanyahu? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I wanted to put my life, life in less, you know, <laughs> safe hands, I can't imagine a duo more than the Hamas leadership, uh, you know, and, and Netanyahu, who seems... Yeah, no, thank you. You know, the, the when you say no two-state solution as he does, then what are you saying? You're talking about what, eradicating a people? Uh, if Hamas says... Oh, now we're not going to allow for a two-month um, ceasefire to return hostages. Maybe one has to delve deeper in that they want genocide or they want this kind of bombardment taken off the table. Mm. You know, and again, we'd have to come up with some conditions. You don't get to do October 7th, 2.0, you know, in the spring. Mm. Who has the standing to have the conversation? That's the issue. Yeah, that very and good I think point. Until, right, until we establish... Somebody or some aggregate of countries who can be trusted. Um, I, I uh, you know, I, I fear for the worst. I mean, look, we still haven't gotten Ukraine pacified. Nobody's sure what that's about anymore. Yeah. Nobody was sure what it was about from the beginning. <laughs> Other than diversionary tactic. Hey, look here. Um, and we're going to end up there probably where we could have ended up two years ago in terms of terms if we ever get to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just forlorn. It is foreboding. Uh, Southeast Asia bound deliveries of Russian coal. You mentioned the Eastern Europe area, um, excluding China, jumped by a massive 47% in 2023 and reached 13.1 million tonnes. It shows the world, surely, and it shows NATO in particular, the futility of trying to take out Russia. At the end of the day, they yeah. are powerless to do anything. They will find ways with their allies to survive and prosper. Well, and the the US has demonstrated that they are not, um, you know, the, um, the wizard in that sense. People have started doing uh, deals not denominated in dollars, for example. So if anything, this has shown people how to do business Without the U.S. Yes. To do them yes. in rubles, to do them in, you know, uh, Chinese currency, to do them in um, whatever. Um, and people will work around and find ways. They're not going to be held hostage. You see, and again, I hate to say this. It's not just America writ large. It's the quality of leadership there or in the U.K. Unelected PM in the U.K. going around assuring Ukraine that they will fight to the last uh, you know, sovereign pound or whatever. Like, what standing do you have to make that declaration True. on behalf of your countrymen? Mm -hmm. There's, uh, you know, there's Biden, who when he's not prosecuting uh, people who had uh, the moral courage to say no to insane uh, mandates, is, uh, you know, shelling out money to a corrupt regime. We don't even know where the weapons they sell go. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you know, it's not just a matter of all the money that's been 
people in the United States sit there and say, I don't have infrastructure, I don't have a job, I don't have decent medical care, but Ukraine sure getting a lot of the money you're asking me uh, to shell out. And then the weapons we send end up with actors at least as bad as Hamas, because if anybody thinks that Ukraine has a Swiss bank for these weapons, they carefully give them out to good actors and not to bad. And anybody who's got money, they'll give them to. Yeah, it's very true. They've turned up in all quarters of the globe. We know that. One last one, and I want to turn to a region that uh, we need to start focusing on because things are changing both militarily and economically. China's population has shrunk for the second year in a row. Now, the National Bureau of Statistics reports just 9.02 million births in 2023, only half as many as in 2017. So coupled with what they have emerged from out out of the pandemic, which is a parlous situation on many economic indicators, is this long-term economic disaster um, for China likely to have a flow-on effect for the rest of the world? Surely it will. Yeah, um, so it will no longer even be the world's most populous country, um, keeping this going. Um, However, they'll still have, what, 1.426 billion people, something like that, uh, more than the entire population of Europe and the Americas. So it, it's a while yet. I mean, this is, you know, we are extrapolating. Yeah. Um, the um, I think um, what's happening is that there's a skewed sex ratio at birth. Uh, there are a lot of missing females. They're going to have to address uh, that issue. They have a rapidly aging population. Yeah. And they don't do a lot of succession planning. <laughs> or seeding, well, I should say that about China. What do we say about the U.S.? Hmm. I mean, look at the age profile of the two presidential candidates. Yes. So, you know, a runoff between a psychopath and a dementia patient. Isn't that wonderful to lead the free world? <laughs> <laughs> but and also it's, happen- China and it's happening for a second time. It's not, Omar, it's happening I for know. a second time, which, is, which compounds the uh, hilarity of it all. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, hilarity or the the sheer terror of the whole thing. Um, China, yeah, and also then the other issue is not just the birth rate, but the high level of migration out of China. They haven't created a society in which people long to live, um, and you don't attract anyone into the society, of course, it being an impermeable membrane. So I have always felt, people felt that China would be the great threat. I have always been the contrarian who said, the thing you have to understand is it has to be a multipolar world because China does not want the U.S.'s role. Mm. It is not culturally designed to want to oversee everyone, rule everyone possibly, subjugate maybe, but certainly not to manage everyone. Because the Chinese believe they have an impenetrable, inscrutable culture. You can't understand them and they don't want to understand you. Right, they're not comfortable. What made the US unique was that it was a melting pot. It was uniquely organized to say, yeah, bring me your your cold, your hungry, your your huddled masses, whatever it is, yearning to be free. But you were it was a polyglot. Mm-hmm. And so different cultural zones could exist. And in China, that's not the case. I and mean, one of the things that held Japan back as well. 
I mean, of course, a much smaller country, still an economic dynamo, and still much better at it than the Chinese. If you look at the number of Japanese brands globally, compared to, say, Chinese brands. So that's an issue. So I don't believe China wants that role. What China wants is economic preeminence. And it would love to have a global cohort of nations that keep the world stable, uh, relatively prosperous. Um, but they're not looking for, hey, I want everyone listening to Chinese music, or I want everyone watching Chinese movies. Or I, you know, the Americans are the communicators, not the Chinese. So I, I think we need to grow up and also see what each country and culture is really angling for and not use the lens of the colonial uh, or the post-colonial uh, countries, because those were very different. Those were people who actually liked engaging the local populations. Yeah, I think that 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 is a warning that needs to be heeded by people who so quickly want to condemn China for somehow wanting to take over every continent in the world. I, I appreciate your analysis with that and everything that we've spoken about in this short period. Thank you. You're very generous with your time, Omar. Much My appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoyed the time. Thank you. We'll talk again, I hope, sometime. I hope too. Thank you very much, Omar. Omar Khan, Global Crisis Consultant. Um, he's got his finger on the proverbial pulse, as I said before, of what's happening in the world and then some, as you probably appreciated. And even on the chat box, I'm getting um, a stack of responses from people saying, wow, what an analysis. Um, Omar is making some very good points there, etc." He sure is. Terrific to have him on the program. We'll take a break. If you've got something to say, love to hear it and love to hear from you right now. I'll also get to the fate of electric vehicles. Some very interesting developments there as well. You can dial in on the uh, talkback lines from the United States or Canada on 1-888-201-6425, from the UK on 033-0024-1026, and from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. This is Chris Smith on TNT. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, Nonprofits are on the front lines, ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes, across all missions, has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The truth is, Parkinson's disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. Worldwide, over 10 million people are living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement. And with so many places to search for information, it can be difficult to know where to begin. The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care, 
give you tips for living a better life, share the latest research, help you find local support, and there's a free helpline you can call. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org or call 1-800-4PD-INFO. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives together. This is The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Okay, I've got a few very important things to convey to you, including on electric vehicles. Now, the Toyota chairman, Akio Toyota. By the way, just on a trivial basis, you know that the chairman of Toyota, TA, is actually has a surname spelt T-O-Y-O-D-A. Um, you know that? Well, apparently they changed it to T-A because Toyota itself using that spelling uh, in Japanese was a measure of luck. So that's why they changed the D to T. There's my trivial pursuit uh, suggestion for today. But electric vehicles, he said this week, will never dominate the market. When you hear your next climate change minister or environment minister talk about how EVs are going to be the only option, as they say in the UK, think about what Mr. Toyota had to say. Electric vehicles will never dominate the market. In the latest sign that car companies are backing away from the troubled technology. Battery-powered electric vehicles will only ever capture 30% of global market share, the chairman said. This is a fellow who would have vast numbers of staff researching, surveying and understanding the market to work out exactly what the future holds when it comes to EVs. He's the guy that has to put the company's profit into research and investment and the manufacturer of EVs. He should know more than just about anyone in the world. He's saying they'll only reach 30% of global market share. And yet, by 2030, by 2030 was the rule that Boris Johnson brought down. In the UK, they're supposed to purchase EV vehicles only. Only. But of course, that's all off the table. Uh, he said uh, that the traditional fuel-burning cars, as well as hybrids and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, and I've got a great deal of um, scepticism about hydrogen cell vehicles, would make up the rest of the market. The grandson of the founder of the world's largest car manufacturer said shifting towards electric vehicles is not the answer when a billion people in the world are living without electricity. Listen to that for a second. A billion people in the world are living without electricity. That's an obvious reason why it could only ever get to about 30%. Certainly wouldn't make up half of the vehicles on the road. But add to the fact that if you are trying to pursue baseload power answers and you get rid of your coal and you get rid of your gas, which is what everyone wants to do, those who are green evangelists, that is, well, where are you going to rely on baseload power from? Is it nuclear? You've got a chance. Is it renewables? You've got no chance. It's never happened before. No country in the world has relied on renewables solely for baseload power. So if your minister or government is telling you you can, they're lying because it's never happened before. And this fellow says if they start telling you that EVs are the only ones on the road, 
the only vehicles we'll ever choose from, they're lying too. It won't happen. Uh, Akio Toyota should know. He told a business event last week that limiting consumer choices and ability to travel by making expensive cars is not the answer. How long have we been saying this on shows like this one on TNT? He said customers, not regulations or politics, should make that decision. He added, engines will surely remain. So if you're slightly carbon proud, keep being as proud as you can be. Which brings me to a report that came out of Chicago. And you know how cold it is in some parts of the United States right now, freezing cold, so much so that if you happen to have an EV, you poor souls, if there's ice on the ground or if it's snowing or if it's super cold, well, sorry, you can't drive your dead robot because once it's out of charge, you can't charge it because the charging stations have all frozen. Have a listen to this report from Fox News in Chicago. Electric cars may be the way of the future, but it's clear there are some problems when it comes to charging them in Chicago's deep freeze. Oh, we got a bunch of dead robots out here. Dead robots. <laughs> dead Teslas packed the parking lot at this Tesla supercharging station in Oak Brook, a scene mirrored at other supercharging stations around the Chicago area. Man, this is crazy. It's, it's, it's a disaster. Seriously. With temperatures falling into the negative double digits, these charging ports have stopped charging, leaving many Tesla owners stranded here in long lines since Sunday. Nothing, no juice, it's still on zero percent, and this is like three hours this morning being out here, after being out here eight hours yesterday. Has it been charging? No, not at all. It just isn't working? At all. It's just frozen, and so I'm now getting it towed to the um, Tesla service center because that's my only option at this point. Adding to their frustration, they say, is that they're getting no help when they call Tesla for assistance. No response from Tesla. We have been suffering since yesterday uh, afternoon. These are unusually cold temperatures, but do you find this acceptable? No, not at all. Not really. I, I think it's less on the actual vehicle and more on the infrastructure. Consumer beware. Be very, very careful about considering electric vehicles, especially if you're a resident of Chicago, but also if it gets cold where you live. And if you're in Australia, if you travel long distances, be careful about purchasing EVs as well because they don't have a great range. These are all the problems associated with what some politicians say is the way of the future. And some say it's the way of the immediate future. They are wrong. They are lying. Very quickly, this is great news out of Ohio. Ohio has banned gender-affirming care for minors and restricted transgender women's and girls' participation on sports teams, a move that has families of transgender children scrambling over how best to care for them. This is from AP, who don't take a side, which is good. They're a news reporting system. But this, to me, is wonderful news. The Republican-dominated Senate voted Wednesday to override GOP Governor Mike DeWine's veto. The new law bans gender-affirming surgeries and hormone therapies and restricts mental health care for transgender individuals under 18. The measure also bans transgender girls and women from girls and women's sports teams at both the K-12 and collegiate level. Now, that to me very clearly is a step in the right direction. If you don't allow teenagers to vote, if you don't allow them to go to the bar until they're 21, why are you allowing to have a say about changing their gender in their teen years or even earlier? 
It is ludicrous. These are, in some cases, irreversible prospects. Wake up. The world needs to wake up to this stuff. Uh, get the psychiatrist in to treat these kids before you start changing their lives forever. We will take a break. We'll get to John Ruddick next hour on the program, so don't miss John and plenty more coming up as well right here on TNT.